One of the one of the first lessons I learned in preaching class was that uh, we were supposed to figure out the parameters of the scriptures we were using, so that we weren't preaching on just sort of part of a passage. So we we weren't preaching on maybe just a single verse when that verse in order to be understood, has to be understood within a much greater context. And today's passage, uh, today's sermon was, was one which challenged me in that bit of teaching because I really wanted to preach on a whole chapter from the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, but it seemed like it would be too long. If I asked Bill to preach the whole chapter, that would probably be longer than the sermon itself. So I need to forgive you, I need you to forgive me uh, for breaking this rule, the first rule I learned in seminary preaching class, which is to preach from the whole passage. I'm not preaching from the whole passage, but I will make allusions to the whole passage. And if you find it interesting, I, I uh, do recommend that you go home and read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, or at least the rest of chapter 5. Because as Bill said, today's lesson from Matthew starts where last week's lesson ended. It's a continuation of the Sermon on the Mount, and, and this discourse, which is found in three chapters of the book of Matthew, is, is what a lot of biblical scholars consider to be the center or the very essence of Jesus' teaching. You may remember from last week that I, I talked a little bit about how hard the teaching was. We were looking at the, the Beatitudes. Um, in, these passages, in these passages, in these passages, in these lessons, in these teachings, Jesus says things which at first sound great, but upon closer examination, they're actually kind of hard. Uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed or, or happy are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are the persecuted. It, it, uh, it seems like bad manners to suggest such things. Blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. When, when Jesus says that, it sounds like he's not really paying attention to the world around him. And then at the end of last week's passage, uh, where today's passage starts up, there's a little breather. Jesus tells us that we're to be the light of the world, that we're to be the salt of the earth. We're supposed to enlighten and to flavor the world around us, and that sounds great. But then Jesus digs a little deeper into what that means to be. What does it mean to be salt and, and light? It, it means that we have to be so righteous that our righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the professionally righteous. That's not easy. And, that, and that's where I asked Bill to stop reading. But Jesus goes on. Um, he, he, he goes on to say things like um, that if we're going to be salt and light, then we have to be good in ways that are almost impossible. If Bill had continued reading, he would have read about how Jesus says things like, it's not enough to avoid murdering people. You can't even harbor angry thoughts against your neighbor. And if you know your neighbor has reason to be angry with you, then go make it right. In the same way, it's, it's not enough to avoid committing adultery. You can't even entertain the odd feeling of lust. Then Jesus says divorce is the same thing as adultery. And he says it's not enough to honor your vows. You shouldn't even need to swear an oath. Your word should be your bond. And don't try to get even. Instead, turn your cheek when someone strikes you. And be the kind of person... Be kind to the person who's unkind to you. In other words, being salt and light, it's not an easy thing to do. And, and, and what makes it hard is that according to this teaching of Jesus, being good is never a matter 
of passivity. Personally, I wish it was good enough just not to murder someone, for example. That's sort of easy, especially for the timid and the conflict avoidant. But not harboring anger? Making amends even when it's not my fault? That's not so easy. What I can say about this teaching of Jesus is that while it isn't easy, it does seem both good and really important that our righteousness, our righteousness not be passive. And I say this with a full understanding that the standard set by Jesus in this passage is impossible. Furthermore, I can tell you that as a pastor, I have had a hard time unpacking this passage with church members, especially with those who have been divorced. Because if you do read further in this chapter, you will find that Jesus says some uncomfortable things about divorce and remarriage. He says that unless it's a, over an issue of adultery, to divorce someone is the same thing as causing that person to commit adultery. And that's something that has caused a serious amount of spiritual damage over the years. It has imparted a lot of guilt. In my pastoral work, I've had people dissolve into tears over this passage, which offers no relief to those who are abused, no grace to those who have made mistakes. Jesus' teaching on, teaching on divorce clearly was imagined by someone who never was in a difficult marriage, who had no problem inviting a bunch of married men to leave their wives to wander around the countryside talking about king, the kingdom of heaven, which is to say this is a problematic passage. But my problem with Jesus' teaching on divorce isn't in the principle, it's in the application of the principle, which in a way that lacks grace and ignores the human condition. If I was Jesus' editor, I'd ask Jesus to apply the principle differently. For example, maybe Jesus could say that while divorce sometimes is necessary or it just happens, dissolving the marriage isn't the same thing as making a marriage good, which seems about right especially in a world where divorced women had little hope of economic stability. Anyway, however imperfectly it is applied, I think the principle that, 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 the principle that passive morality isn't moral, I think that's good, and I think it's really needed. After all, it doesn't do us any good to put a lamp on a lampstand if you don't actually light the lamp. And the salt of the earth flavors nothing if it stays in the cupboard and never makes it into the stew pot. Imagine, for example, having a friend who never said anything mean to you, never hit you, never stole your stuff, but who also never made an effort to talk to you, never called you up, never came over for dinner, never invited you to go on a walk or whatever, never sent you an email. That person wouldn't really be a good friend. But that's how a lot of us behave in the world. I think we all know, for example, that racism and white supremacy have, done a great, have caused a great deal of misery in our world and in our country and in our city and in our neighborhoods. But if, like me, you are white, you probably have heard members of your community say things like, hey, racism isn't my problem. I never owned slaves. My ancestors fought for the North in the Civil War, or maybe my people came from, Northern, came from Ireland in 1920 and moved to Boston where there was no Jim Crow. Racism isn't my problem. But that's not enough, right? Those of us with privilege have to use that privilege to make a difference. 
we have to speak up. We have to support politicians who are committed to structural change and not just support, we have to vote. We have to practice an active righteousness. We have to engage the world around us economically in ways that make it better. It's not enough for a man to say, I'm not sexist. I never kept a woman from voting. I've never paid a woman less than her male colleagues. If that man was born after the passage of the 19th Amendment and that man has never had any employees of any kind, it's not enough. Does it make it okay that he's never spoken up to challenge the misogyny he encounters in church or in the workplace or in the home? Is it enough for straight people to say, hey, we've never opposed marriage equality if they, they never make an effort to get to know and love their niece's wife. And here's a little bit of prognostication. If God willing, we emerge with all of our faculties intact from the current political zeitgeist, I rather suspect that a lot of politicians will try to excuse themselves by saying things like, hey, I never voted to separate children from their families and put them in cages along the U.S.-Mexico border. I never participated in presidential bullying. I never took a bribe. Hey, I never gave a quid for anyone's quo. But will that excuse the absolute timidity of politicians currently running the show in Washington? The morality of Christ is not passive. It is active. Now, I wouldn't be a very good Protestant if I didn't also give a shout-out to grace. Grace, as a concept, is not mentioned here in the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, Jesus really doesn't talk about grace in the Gospels. It's Paul who introduces grace to the Christian tradition. It's a concept borrowed from the Stoics, and it's shaped Christian communities from its earliest years. The idea of grace is that where we are lacking in righteousness... God's righteousness fills in the gaps. Where we fail, we are given a second chance. Where we are weak, God is strong. It is a beautiful concept. A recovery of the doctrine of grace is at the root of the Protestant Reformation, and grace is one of the reasons I like being Protestant so much. But for a lot of Protestants, grace becomes an excuse, a crutch. By grace, God frees us from sin, we say. So I'll just sit alone on the couch eating a bowl of cereal. I'll avoid temptation and we'll call that righteousness. That's the good life. Well, this approach to grace assumes that avoiding sin, that being freed from evil, is the same thing as doing good in the world. But when understood properly, the Protestant understanding of grace is not just that grace frees us from sin, but that grace frees us so that we are able to go out and do good in the world. Not just freed from, but freed to righteousness. The concept of grace is rooted in the idea that no one can live up to the standard set by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and in other places in the Scriptures. No one can love his enemies all of the time. No one keeps her word in every situation. If someone claims never to have had an impure thought, they probably are fibbing, which is a violation of Jesus' teachings. And we could get stuck spiritually by worrying about all of the ways we fall short. And that miry soulscape could keep us from living in a way that does any good in the world. 
which is where God's grace comes in. God's grace releases us from guilt, which in turn frees us to do good. Empowered by grace, we can indeed do what is just rather than simply avoiding what is offensive. Empowered by grace, we can take risks to create beauty rather than passively accepting what is bland. Empowered by grace, we can speak truth rather than simply keeping silent in the presence of lies. Empowered by grace, we can love. Empowered by grace, we can get up, set aside our screens and our technology, and walk out into the world that God has made for us. We can breathe deeply, and we can rejoice in the goodness of the earth. So dearly beloved, embrace God's grace. Be filled with divine energy. Practice the kind of active righteousness that Jesus taught us to see as a mark of life in the kingdom of God. Be excellent to each other. Don't just be. Do. Don't just observe. Be a participant. Don't let life happen. Make life happen. Then you will be salt of the earth. Then you will be the light of the world. You will be a city built on a hill that cannot be hid. Thanks be to God.